G'day civilians, little public service announcement here. On behalf of our partners at Better Beer, the Arvo Ale is upon us. And that means that as soon as the sun gets past the peak of its daily arc and the stifling heat and rank humidity are at their oppressing most mugginess, nothing on this planet will freshen up your Arvo like a better beer Arvo Ale. This is the most sessional Pacific Ale that'll ever pass your lips. Super easy drinking, clean and crisp. It's like a winter offshore in the middle of summer and it's a craft beer without the craft beer wank. You know what I'm talking about. Craft beer wank, it kind of tastes a bit like, I don't know, fruit salad and yogurt. It's like, fuck, man, if I want to drink fruit salad and yogurt, I'll fucking go and get a smoothie, all right? When I drink a beer, I want to be refreshed. I want it to be clean and crisp and I want it to be the Better Beer Arvo Ale. So kick the back half of your day off in style with a Better Beer Arvo Ale. It's available now at all good bottle shops or you can jump online and see where they stock it. Better Beer Arvo Ale, proud partners of Ain't That Swell. Ain't That Swell presents Corlords. Welcome to Corlords. Today we're joined by Heath Josky and Addy Jones. Heath Josky probably doesn't need any introduction. He was a former high-profile Billabong team rider and remains an incredible free surfer and one of the great slab shamans in Australia today. Addy Jones, he's a bit more obscure, but if you've seen any of Mick Waters' films or uh, any of the Australian-made Patagonia films, you're likely to have come across him. He's an absolute wizard of permaculture, uh, you know, did an apprenticeship with Bill Mollison, the guy who literally wrote the book on permaculture, and uh, Jeff Lawton. Uh, and he's uh, an incredible surfer, uh, shaper, inventor, designer, tweaker. And uh, yeah, they're just two very fascinating characters. Uh, I caught up with him just after the premiere of Farm Boys, a new project by Patagonia and the Fun Boys Entertainment Systems. Uh, which basically, yeah, it's kind of like a, a permaculture farming meets surfing show. I think it's the only hardcore surfing and gardening program is the tagline, and that's what it was. It was actually really quality viewing. And Heath and Addy, yeah, we just sat down and, and really talked very deeply about the relationship of farming and growing your own food to life, to surfing, uh, and just the intersection of all that, it, it was great. And I actually learned a lot about Heath. Uh, you know, I've known him for many years, but man, the the particulars of his story, his upbringing with his folks uh, there, uh, down uh, around Valor, kind of Coffs Harbour way, Nambucca Valley way, is uh, it's remarkable stuff. And it, there's a real lesson in there. And mate, what about his surfing career too? Some incredible highlights there. Uh, the Soul Arch, some of the J-Bay missions and performances. Yeah, so an incredible couple of people right here. Two of the most committed core, Hessian core, earth core, core lord surfers and uh, designers and farmers and tweakers you're ever likely to hear from. All right, welcome to Ain't That Swell, Heath Josky and uh, Addy. Addy Jones, is it? Yeah, that's it, mate. Nice. Uh, we're, we're sharing a mic here in the studio, so uh, I'll basically be 
chatting with Heath and then chatting with Addy and uh, trying our best to, to make it all fit together. But you guys are up here doing a little premiere for your, your new series, Farm Boys, part of the, uh, well, kind of the, the new wave of the Fun Boys chapter. It's morphed into Farm Boys and uh, we had a look at it last night at the Byron Community Centre and it was epic. I was uh, really impressed by the production values of it. Uh, and the message, obviously, is one that I wholeheartedly subscribe to and I, I don't think it could come soon enough. A- amazing work, man. Well done. Thanks, Jed. Thanks for having us on the show, mate. It's, uh, yeah, love listening to the Swellians. You keep me occupied in the garden when the, when the new apps drop and keep me giggling and planting away happily. So, no, nah, it's a pleasure to be on with you. Well, yeah, let's get into the show first because uh, I think it's it's a good place to start and then we can kind of backtrack in, into your story because uh, it's all interwoven. But yeah, tell us a bit about the project. Yeah, it's, um, I've been sort of talking with Patagonia for a few years about wanting to wanting to do a, a video or some clips on on gardening and recycling and just living a more simple life because... I feel that that's something that all of us can do to take the pressure off our planet and really, you know, in, take uh, take matters into our own hands a little bit and and start to, you know, just instead of talking about all the problems all the time, we can start to be part of the solution. And it's also, you know, the the food that we're that we're given from the supermarket or from the normal places are often, you know, not really food anymore. It's just, it's grown with a bunch of chemicals and and grown as quick as they can just to get that product out to us. And it's it's not the healthy, nutritious tucker that we should be getting. So, yeah, I've just been really keen to, to share that message and try and get as many of us growing our own food as we possibly can and just taking the pressure off the planet a bit. Mate, couldn't agree more. Well said. And yeah, it's really one of the most revolutionary things you can do that the individual can do to to kind of push back against a, a failing system. Uh, you know, as they say, every dollar is a vote in capitalism. So instead of spending your money with big agriculture and these kind of toxic systems of uh, growing food, um, you can grow your own food. And so you're taking a dollar away from a, a, a system that's hell-bent on destroying topsoils and uh, the planet in, in many different ways. And uh, you're redirecting commerce into a place that's going to generate better outcomes for, for yourself and the planet. Like, what, what could be better than that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, I don't know, maybe... a incredible barrels sort of right up there too but it's it is exactly what you're saying it's taking power back into our hands you know <clears throat> and if enough of us enough of us start living this way well then we can be trading with each other and not having to work as much because we don't need as much money to go out and buy the expensive foods and mm. we don't need to go and buy the you know the new materials to build and have the top of the line bits and bobs, you know, happiness is much easier found plodding away in your patch and growing delicious food and providing yourself, you know, with meals and and food from your own patch that that um 
yeah, I feel like that brings my family lots of happiness all the time and we don't have to go and spend the big dollars on big holidays or, you know, big fancy houses or, you know, whatever it is, keeping up with the Joneses. You, you just keeping up with the Joskies, which is pretty easy. <laughs> well, you've got to keep up with one, Jones. Addy, <laughs> like uh, one of the, the real messages that came out of uh, the, the Farm Boys show last night was that, you know, you don't need a big plot of land to be growing your own food uh, and you don't need uh, immense financial resources. You know, you can go to your local tip and you can get a fucking, as you mentioned, a bathtub. And you can fill it with you know a few rocks and a bit of soil, and you've got enough uh, you've got enough growing power there to, to pump out a, a, at least enough food for your your you know uh, garden salad every night for your family. Like yeah. so, yeah. It, people can be daunted by the prospect of having a crack at growing their own food, and, and it can seem like this huge infrastructure and, and resource spend, but it it doesn't have to be that, does it? No, it doesn't, mate. Hey, um, the 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 I think um, I think we've all just got to realise that what Heath was just saying, you know, bring back the power to the individual in 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 their own space, on the ground, in their garden, um, and um, it's very satisfying. You know, even if you can only supply a little bit of salad to one of your meals every day least you're doing something you know um but yeah no you, you don't need a great deal of space um you know one one cubic meter you can grow a shitload of food out of that uh, you know for yourself um as i was mentioning last night like i just uh, i live on my own so i don't have to have a massive garden um and i've kind of really whittled my um my greens down to just to the few survival ones and and i just like cooking with them you know, um, and they go with everything. Like, you know, you can go out there and have a graze in the morning, you know, have your warm water, lemon juice, go out, have a graze, have a swim, and then by 10 o'clock you're ready for a, a, a something a bit more, you know, substantial. But it's, um, yeah, no, one cubic, one, 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 one cubic metre, um, yeah, you can do a lot. So you're living down there on an island in Bass Strait, uh, was it 40 degrees, latitude yeah, yeah, south it. so like Down the, in the ferno group yeah, yeah. islands and um been there for about 13 years now um and um yeah no it's a good spot it's uh it's pretty wild and woolly pretty wild and woolly um yeah that's what i kind of like about it mm. you know um there's you know a few days well quite a few days go by actually where i just sit in the wheelhouse and just just stare out the window and just watch it all go by you know it's like a moving movie mm. all the time um, always something different to look at, you know. And how much of your food is is generated simply by yourself? Um, at the minute, I'd probably oh, I'd probably say about forty percent, I suppose. Yeah. So um, we we'll go fishing a lot, and um, as I said, I have got a little patch behind behind my shack, and I just make sure my my rice drums topped up, you know, mm. keep me rice on hand. So. And- you mentioned last night, like some of the the, the staples, like the easy to grow staples. I mean, yeah. you're in a particularly harsh climate, yeah. But yeah. like on the east coast of Australia, I mean, most people live on the east coast of Australia. It's the it's the highest, like, uh, or the, yeah, New South Wales is the highest population density. The east coast, and I guess the whole eastern seaboard's pretty yeah. much where the populations are. And 
Um, I, in any case, like most places in Australia are more hospitable than where both you guys live, yet you're managing to cultivate incredible amounts of food. What are some of the, the real easy, basic staples that any fucking, uh, any punter can get going? Any Ning Nong like us. Um, well, um, uh, I like, uh, if you're going to dabble in um, some citrus, lemons, limes, they're always a good one mm. to start up because you can do so much with them and they're real good for you. Um, you know, either dealt with processed or raw, you know. Um, and then, um, yeah, just all your you know, different salad greens and um, brassicas and, you know, um, the deadly, deadly nightshades. Uh, um, yeah, no, there's a... It's just what you got to do is just, like, put in a bunch. Don't get too, you know, down on yourself if a few things die out and what you're planting in. And just, um, you know, the things that do roll good, keep ro- keep them rolling, you know. Um, try new stuff. So it's always that learning, like, <coughs> excuse me. Um, you know, my mum was a good gardener too and we've always had a bit of a garden and... And um, I've been very blessed in 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 my journey, um, being able to hang out with a few different kind of sensei guys in the gardening world, um, and that's been um, that's been a real good learning and and you know sharing knowledge down the rung. Um, so yeah, no. Yeah. Tell us a bit about your journey. Like, where did you grow up? Tell tell us a bit about your folks as well. What they did for a living. Um, so we grew up, I was born in, um, Newcastle, Swansea, Belmont, little hospital. And then, um, we moved north, um, around, um, uh, we were in, uh, southern Queensland and then northern New South. Um, and, um, yeah, just, um, the folks had a farm and, um, yeah, mum was a bit of a homemaker, you know, did everything and looked after all us mob and sewed and cooked and, and, you know, did all that. So that was, that, that was a, um, yeah, that was really nice to have that, you know, upbringing. And, yeah, um, I, I love that too. Like, that's like that, that old school thrifty yeah, DIY ethos, you know, yeah. that was just par for the course back in the day. It, it's just what you did. It was kind of like a hangover from the depression and, and, and kind of these times when yeah. we didn't live in uh, the abundance that we do now. You know, technology and automation has created this insane overflow of productivity and and goods and services, um, which, yeah, like, you know, it should have made life a lot easier. It should have enabled more thrifty mm. DIY uh, kind of lifestyles, but instead that product, that overflow of productivity and uh, abundance has just been sucked up into the bank accounts of billionaires, leaving people under as much debt pressure as ever. But mm, um, yeah. the way out really is to, to take that power back like the old, old, older crew did, you know, like just making your own shit, growing your own That's shit. That's it. If you ain't got it and you ain't got no coin... We'll make it. It's more fun and satisfying after you've actually built something with your own hands and you go to use it and it works and you've recycled all this crap that was sitting in a pile on the ground. Um, yeah, put it back into circulation, you know. Um, get the biggest squirt of do- dopamine, but instead people are going to the, the pharmacy and just getting a packet of dopamine in pill form when you can just fucking fix, yeah, a, fix a bodgy yeah, lawnmower yeah, yeah. and you're just getting squirted up deluxe. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> so good. And um, yeah, okay. So, 
And then tell us about your story. So from those origins, you end up, you were living around here. You mentioned Ben King last night. He's the, the late uh, board riders president from, yeah, from yeah, down yeah, here. From you Byron, guys yeah, that's right. had a project um, together. Yeah, no, well, I, um, as I was saying last night, I, I, uh, I called in to see him one day when he had his shop in town, uh, the Surf Cave was called and um, really cool store a lot of memorabilia and retro stuff and you know just all old school cool you know so um uh yeah walked in to see him and um i kind of walked out taking the shop on um i didn't walk in to take a shop on but um so anyway i jumped in boots and all like i could do and um uh, yeah it was shaping boards um, at night, I was out the back in between serving customers, screen printing all my own t-shirt designs we were doing, and we were making hemp board shorts out the back in this old house, and oh yeah, it was hectic. Broken boards, I used to get everyone to drop their broken boards off at the shop, but I'd make furniture out of them, and all if we had, you know. Um, I had, I carved up this, I, yeah, I carved up this big totem pole, and, and we put it in the centre of the store, and um, uh, a mate who's a uh, blacksmith, he made me up all these wrought iron branches and roots and stuff, and there was five big branches coming out of it, and I hung on with single fins off them, and they spun like leaves in the centre of the shop, like <laughs> when the when the breeze came through the shop door. It was no really, way. yeah, it was really nice, and um, but yeah, no, uh, so yeah, did that for a while. Um, that been, is magic, by the way. That sounds like the ultimate shrine to nineties or eighties core surf culture. I mean, what period was this roughly? Uh, uh, it was late 90s. Late 90s, was, yeah, classic. Yeah, late 90s. Byron would have been a very different place back then. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, like, I've uh, I've only been in town, what, two days now, and, um, oh, yeah, the, the change is just phenomenal. Like, it's um, – anyway – Everyone knows what it's like. I don't have to say anything. <laughs> well, well uh, it's interesting because, uh, you know, we don't get a lot of guests on here who were necessarily like, you know, adults in the 90s. Like, yeah. and, you know, we've had a, a bunch of guys from Byron who, who were groms then. But, yeah. um, you know, what do you think's been kind of lost or what in the culture in, in that period? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, the obvious thing is, you know, this is kind of like the uh, – the old school cool in a lot of areas, you know, like the architecture mm. um, and um, the cars that are getting around and the, the crew that are walking down the street and the shops and do all the different shit they're selling and, and all that. Um, um, and also, you know, walking down the street, it's like spot the local now, you know, it's just like, oh, I've, I think I've seen one person I know from back in the day, you know, mm. so, but it's... Um, but hey, you know what? <clears throat> you can't stop it. It's just what it is. It's progress. It happens everywhere, all the time, twenty four seven. It's a weird one. I, I, when people say it's progress, I feel like it's kind of, I feel like it's more cannibalistic than progress. It's like this weird kind of uh, thing that capitalism's set up, where you basically have people who work and, and build a community, and then you have the rich who start to take a liking to that community they buy that community and then force the the workers to rent it back off them for an exorbitant yeah, price it. yeah, weed them out. Yeah. it's kind of yeah. like just some some weird money-making scheme i don't yeah gentrification it's a fucking weird one because it does happen everywhere yeah Ooh. check check testing make a banana cry yes mr what you want suit up must not yeah, gentrification. Uh, it is a weird one. 
like it, it does take place all up and down the east coast uh all over the world and i live through it in bondi and uh the eastern suburbs and yeah a lot does get lost in the process and i'm, I'm still struggling to feel like to, to figure out whether it's actually progress or it's just some fucking weird late stage capitalism like rot where we just kind of are making money off nothingness you know what i mean mm. just you know what i mean like selling it, ideas yeah selling thoughts selling all this stuff so. yeah like does it like i don't know like what happens to the people who grew up in that community where do they go what, what price on community like well all these things as you know we've seen in around here it's just like exactly what you said the rich crew come into town um they buy everything up um one's not enough so they've got to buy the whole block and then that pushes everything through the stratosphere and then all the old school crew um well they can't afford to be living in there anymore and they're not down with sleeping in their cars um on the side of the road so you know they've got to move out in the hills uh relocate to suburbia somewhere a different spot um yeah so yeah no that is a that is a, a a real weird one. Yeah, yeah. I think there should be some kind of, I don't know, law on on ownership of things. I think you have every everyone should be allowed to have their one family home that they own. Mate, that would stop outright. it dead in the tracks. Boom, if there it? was a, a cap on the amount of Bang. properties you could own, it, it'd all end overnight. Exactly right. Yeah, mate. and capping exactly rents right. and just capping the amount of money that you can make off. Uh, owning property, which you know, a house yeah. over your head is is uh, a fundamental human right, right. to have dignified housing, exactly. Exactly right, and uh, the right to live in a community and the right to grow your own food. Like, mm. I just don't think that you know, you go back to your parents' generation, mm. and people just weren't thinking like this. It didn't seem like people weren't in this race to just accrue properties and, and no. financial wealth. You know, I, I think there was a lot more value placed on. Uh, you know, and a lot more respect given to the ability to be thrifty, to grow your own food, to, to yeah, build yeah. shit, to, to yeah, be a fucking right. quality sportsman, a quality community man. They, these, This is what got your respect and admiration back in the day. If you were just some rich fucking Scrooge, like life was not that pleasant for you because the community made you feel like the pariah and the punish that you were. But um, it seems to me today that like, that wealth, that kind of Instagram culture of consumption and big up in your material uh, accoutrements is is like admired or desired by mm. so many people. That's that that is the culture now. Yeah, it's a trip, isn't it? Really, um, it's just like you know we we were all born, we all came into this world in the raw with nothing. Mm. you know um and that's how we're going to leave as well and we can't take anything with us um i think your you know your wealth bank your karmic wealth bank is your experiences you know and um what you do while you're walking on the planet um because yeah monetary <coughs> monetary doesn't make you happy mm. you know it's just a vehicle to get you to the next spot you know, um, and that vehicle doesn't have to be the latest European designer vehicle. It can just be a fucking mate. a trusty car. You don't have to upgrade every two years. And uh, I'm still rolling my work wagon, my work trucks, a 1984 Mazda Bongo. 
Mazda Bongo. Of course you're driving a Bongo. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then me daily drivers, a 1987 long wheelbase Suzuki Sierra. You know, um, and there's no there's no real trimmings in them. Um, you really know you're driving them, um, but yeah, and, and and they do me. They get me from A to Z. Um, well, might have to skip a few letters in the alphabet sometimes between A to Z, but we eventually get there. Yeah, and I'll, you know, I've seen the way you live in some of Mick Waters' documentaries. Uh, shout out to Mick; he'll be listening to this. Uh, oh yeah, Mickey. Hey, mate. Absolute legend, and. Uh, you know, he's made some incredible films through Patagonia. Yeah. Um, and, and the way you live is, it really does hark back to that age of just uh, thriftiness and, and being self-reliant. And, uh, you know, yeah, it, it seems like odd and, and almost new wave now. But in reality, like, that's how we lived for thousands of years, the way you live. It's not, there's nothing weird about it at all. It, it's only in this modern context that, that it seems odd. But Yeah, that's right. Can you tell us a bit about how you uh, ended up kind of living that way, where the, the seeds were, were first sown to, to kind of begin on that journey? Um, when I was a kid, I used to love watching the Wombles. And there were these furry little like, wombat little critters that used to roll in the forest and live in burrows and things and under trees and stuff and... And, um, you know, follow the humans around and pick up what they drop and take it back to their burrow and make cool shit out of it and reuse it and eat it or live in it or whatever. And um, that just stuck with me. And I thought, yeah, that's me. And then, and then, and then the other one too, you know, um, didn't have a lot, um, kind of never really had a lot. Um, comfortably broke is kind of how I like to put it. And um, yeah, you just gotta you just gotta make the best out of everything you got, you know. Um, yeah. And then, so when did you really get deep into uh, growing your own food? You mentioned you had some some senseis and uh, yeah. some mentors along yeah. the way. Yeah. So um, I've always had a little garden, um, and uh, like when I was um, eighteen, I had a. I had uh, started my own little landscape company and had a couple of blokes working for me and, you know, stuff like that. It wasn't hectic or, you know, highfalutin by any means. Um, had an old truck, had an old box of tools and we used to just go out, you know, doing landscaping and stuff and bushrock waterfalls and ponds and well, whatever. Um, and then, um, yeah, I've always had a little veggie garden going. Um, and then um, um, I met uh, another mate, Jeff Lawton. Uh, he's a good mate. I've known him for oh, over 25 years. Um, and um, he actually, I was actually, I can still remember it actually. I'm sitting in, when I was living up uh, behind um, uh, Lake McDonald and Croy, behind Noosa there. Um, I was sitting in my little shack down on... Uh, it was an old combi, actually, with a bit of a lean-to humpy over it and had a little wood-fired pizza oven and then a little hot wood-fired shower thing going on. And Anyways, I'm sitting down there one day and um, Jeff came down the path and um, and uh, sat down, we had a cup of tea and a chat and then he said to me, he said, he said, man, Bill just, I've just been talking to Bill and he wants us to go down and get the institute going again and, and start teaching courses and get it back rocking. I went, oh, right, eh? And he said, what are you doing? Are you, are you in? You want to come with me? And I went, sure. So, um, uh, yeah, so then we um, 
we all, we we pooled all our worldly possessions. Was was wasn't much. I think we filled an old XD station wagon. Uh, <laughs> it, it reminded me of like what was that show? Um, the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, putting all that <laughs> shit in the truck and just leaving and just going and starting again. You know, and and that's what it was. Uh, it was pretty raw when we got there. Everything overgrown. Um, there was cows walking and pissing and shitting and living in the in the tea house, um, which was which was the classroom where we taught all the courses, and um, all the accommodation and buildings were all run down, and there was a few ferals here there living in in some buildings and whatnot. And but anyway, yeah, so we got all that rocking again, and um, yeah, we were uh, we were all there for for quite a while. Um, and then, um, yeah, so Bill, I, uh, I had the opportunity to hang out with Bill quite a bit and do so work with him. And these guys, Bill and, and Jeff Lawton, these are the guys who literally wrote the book on permaculture, like so, the, the so, actual book. I've got like, there's like, they basically uh, almost didn't invent the concept, but, or maybe they did, but they were like the very originators uh, of this sacred text, which pretty much every Hessian in the in I don't know the world seems to have on their, their coffee table this book right yeah the design manual that's the um, if you can only have one book that's a book to have you know because it, it 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 can be as simple as you like or it can be as full-on as you like you know it's just how you inter- interpret it um, but um, um, yeah no we when when we were all at the Institute there um, at the permaculture Research Institute at Tyalgum that was Bill's farm and um, um, he had a little five-acre block in his food forest right next door to the Institute, and that's where him and his wife lived there. Um, and um, they had their own little publishing company, Tagari Publications, yeah. and that was on site on the farm. Wow. And, um, yeah, we I remember going in there and redoing all the bookshelves and bookcases and doing all this stuff for him in, in, the, um, in the showroom there. And... Um, yeah, no, I was actually still, I was looking at some old photos a little while back and I found one of me and Bill and me old 54 split, split wintry in Combi Ute with the Red Dogs in the back driving down, sitting out the front of the Institute with the, under the big sign. Uh, it, was kind of, it was a funny photo, yeah, so it kind of bring, brung back a few memories. Wow, what amazing mentors to have, the guys who wrote the book on permaculture. Yeah, That's so there was, um, yeah, so the the... the you know the the originators of permaculture. I, I think is the third world. They've been doing it forever, um, and um, and um, yeah, Bill uh, Bill Mollison and Dave Holgram. Those are the two lads that kind of you know got together and nutted it out and started this started this movement. And then they kind of you know went on went on their own kind of journeys with it. Um, and then, um, yeah, Bill, uh, yeah, Bill got on to Jeff, and um, he, Bill, could see the um, uh, the talents and the merits and, and Jeff's heart. You know, it was very similar to Bill. Um, his knowledge base is phenomenal, uh, just like Bill. Um, it's like they can, you know, recall a, a, a quote or, or, or a technique or a remedy or a recipe like that. it's amazing it's like they, they, their mind is just like this you know amazing wealth bank of, of, of just knowledge um, but yeah so it was really it was a it was a real blessing to be able to 
roll with those guys, you know, hang out with them and, and just sponge off them in a mm. good way, you know. Um, mm. Yeah, but yeah, no, it was it, it was a good time out there with everyone. Yeah, it's interesting what you say that the third world kind of in, invented permaculture and or yeah. Out of necessity. Exactly. Out like, of necessity. One of the things I observed. Food exactly. When your life depends on it. dealing with it. You you'll know? fucking figure it out. Mate, you'll do it. Yeah. You know. And uh, one of the things I observed just traveling through Indonesia, you know, is every family has a little subsistence plot they're living on. And they, Something. They, they depend on their goats and their whatever rice and, and, and basic vegetables they can Sweet grow. Sweet potato, cassavas, taros. Yeah. You know, it's, it's... And it's a satisfying way to live. Yeah. You know, totally. like they, they're totally in sync with... Uh, natural rhythms, getting up yep. at the right time, going to bed at the right time. And Patterns then, in nature. Exactly. You know? And that's where we're, what we come from. We're from nature. And once we're removed from those patterns, we become unhappy. And yeah. I, yep. uh, when I was doing some work for Vice Indonesia, I was talking to um, you know Balinese rice farmers who their family had, had sold their rice farm that had been converted into villas or whatever. And this guy, I mean, I'll never forget this. He was telling me how like you know he grew up farming rice with his dad they would mm. wake up at four or five they'd go down work for five or six hours um in in the morning when it was cool yep. and then That's from it. 11 till about four or five they would come home they would eat they would play with the kids they would fall asleep and they'd go knock out a couple of hours on dark That's it. and they yeah. weren't rich obviously mm. um but you know it was a good life and, and now he, he worked in the resort and hotel industry working these long but pointless hours where he did nothing like basically you know like to earn the money to go out to buy his exactly food and, and the cost of living you know? was going up yeah. to such a radical extreme that even that was becoming more and more difficult mm. um, and he was lamenting the fact that they'd sold their land and mm. uh, you know the grass is always greener it was such a remarkable thing. Bali's so fascinating. It's like a petri dish of capitalism where we're seeing these people transition from a, an ancient style of life into a modern style of life in the space of like fucking now, like 10, f- five years even. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, they're grappling with it. So they have such a pure take on uh, the successes and failures of, of modern living. And it was just so stark to him that like he'd made, his family had made the wrong choice there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Um yeah, no, you know, out of necessity. That's the thing. And that's how I like to roll. I've kind of rolled that way, you know, out of necessity. So, um, and I suppose that's between that, the wombles, and, you know, being comfortably broke. Well, that's what equals that. That's what happened. <laughs> and then you moved to Tassie. So talk us through that move. What, what um, prompted that? And how hard was it to, to find your feet down there? Um, yeah, it's been interesting. You know, you still you still still find it after you know only been there for thirteen years. I'm still still going down that path. Um, I've got some really made some really good friends down there. Um, and um, uh, yeah, no, I was uh, I just had enough of up here. Um, I could see what was going to happen, and I just uh, like you know, unfortunately, a lot of other coastal towns around Oz, you know, have gone that way. Um, and at the end of the day, I didn't really want to partake in all that much anymore. Mm. Um, so yeah, I thought there's got to be somewhere else. There's got to, there's got to be something else. So we kind of jumped in the old troopy and went for a drive around Oz and wound up down there. And then, um, uh, I had another mate, um, said, man, while you're Danny, you should stop in there on the way home. And it's a bit of a mission, but you'd love it. I went, oh yeah. So anyway, we did. 
and we did love it and stayed there for a month just surfing and camping and fishing and in our old troopy around the island and then um yeah um what a few years later um i ended up moving there so about five years later we ended up moving there so and how do you go with uh the isolation like is there a, a community there on the island and you know how how often do you see people i guess yeah, yeah, no, there's a full community there. Like, there's, um, you know, a little township, little council chambers, a little supermarket, a little servo, a um, little cafe, a uh, little library, you know, a little hospital. Everything's little. Um, there's about, uh, it's it's a very, um, you know, f- uh, fluctuating kind of population. It's up and down, it's all over the shop, really. Um, and it's like, um, when we moved there, I think, think it was there was about uh 600 people on the island i think just under 600 or 530 or something um and now it kind of goes up and down you know they people come into work and and you know they uh people come in they move there they realize it's not for them they leave or, or there's no money to be made here let's get the it. fuck out of here we're out of here and um and you know they i I think too is like um i suppose it's like anywhere that's kind of remote living around the planet um with new crew that come in and um you know it's like when they come there um it's like they want to bring the city with them and turn their little patch where they've moved to in the middle of whoop whoop into where they've just come from Mm. you know so it's like well i don't know about that Mm. Um, you know, I, I think yeah, I think uh, they're missing the point of why they moved, really, um, to get away from that. But now they want to bring it with them because they feel lonely because they're not in it or something. I don't know. It's a weird one, but yeah. yeah. And one of the real features of your appearance in this Farm Boys project is just your your, your junk wizardry, your, your ability to repurpose trash into something functional. I mean, talk us through some of your proudest inventions or reinventions oh man god um to be honest with you it's a bit of a blur because it's just how i live and how i roll and it's just it's just normal it's just like you know there's nothing i'm doing nothing special i'm only i'm only um trying to get the most out of you know whatever discarded resources left you know um I've made some pretty out of it tripped out surfboards, um, all recycled and vacuum bagged and this and that and um, um, I've made some pretty out there buildings, um, straw bale, bamboo, um, uh, yeah. Um, too much to name. There, oh. There's literally would be thousands of items that you've yeah reinvented. oh yeah for sure yeah. for sure mate yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as a general ethos like you know what do you make of, of what's been thrown out by modern well, culture well, how good, much good shit are we chucking oh mate it's ridiculous absolutely ridiculous it's it's like um um um. Oh, I've had a mind blank. What was that question again? Oh, just like the amount of good shit we're chucking out. Like, 
because at the end of the day, like all that stuff that's in the tip is essentially a resource that's been ripped out of the earth and it's it's been thrown out way before its time. And the reason it's thrown out is uh, basically to keep the, the wheels of commerce spinning, you know, planned obsolescence, all that kind of shit. Like, uh, yeah, I guess talk us through... Uh, you yeah. know, just what your philosophy is with regards to wastefulness in yeah, okay. the modern All condition. Right. Um, I look at I look at discarded whatever, and obviously it's made into you know it's been created into this object. Um, so there's been resource, um, time, and energy put into this thing. It should be reused. You know, um, to throw something that's still perfectly good into a hole in the ground is it, it, it just defeats the purpose of pulling it out in the first place. Totally. Cutting it down and, and milling it up or whatever, you know. Um, you know, like a classic example is going to building sites in Heathiel. You know, vouch, vouch for me on this one. You go to a building site and the amount of offcut and and you know discarded material that are just laying around the site in a skip bin is ridiculous you know absolutely ridiculous um you know they could build a full tilt another little studio shack out the back of the house they've just built with all the shit they're throwing away mm. it's in the skip bin you know it's wonderful for you know wombles like us to go around and, and you know collect it and all that um and i think i think to um you know, there's got to be more. There's got to be more um, um, free thinking and willing to pass the resource on without making money from all our councils. You know, around Oz. So the dump shops a good thing. They come into play. They're they you know pretty cool. But the modern day dump shop now is turned into a privatized little money maker for select crew. Mm. You know, so and and it's and it's the same in nearly every council that you go around Oz. Um, in saying that, our little dump on the island, we've got this little shed, and they call it the giving shed. You know, so if you go to the dump and you've got a bunch of stuff in the back of the ute that you're going to toss in the hole, or in we've got the yeah, or into the Uluru pile of waste, hard waste that's there. Um, you go and you put it in the shed so then someone else can come in. If they're looking for something, they go, oh, look, we need a new saucepan or a lid for me fry pan. Oh, oh look, there's a, there's a couple of bags over there we can use to put our, you know what I mean? It's great. Um, it's the power of community right there because yeah. if, if someone did come in and try and privatise something like that and yeah. make money off it and live in that community, they'd be fucking howled out of there. You know, people you know what happens out of the, Exactly, a good point, mate, because the, the byproduct of that thought is that they go, well, hang on a minute. I've been doing that forever. I'm not going to start paying 10 bucks every ute load of shit. I've got to go and drop off. I'm just going to go down the bush track and dump it in the bush. And that's what happens, you know. And this is why they're very conscious there, the council there, of that fact. That's why there's no fees for dumping stuff or, you know, anything like that. So um, I suppose it's probably not a big one in the in the... Uh, in the cities and all that, and 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 you know more kind of suburby setups um, because it's so densely populated. You know, a lot of the bushland's gone. You mm. know, um, uh, hence those curbside throwouts. 
mm. you know, where the council will every six months, right, oh, we'll let you all go and put two cubic metres out the front of, or a cubic metre of, you know, waste or something, and we'll come and get it for nothing, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I guess the reason, you know, generally uh, so many off-cuts, say, on a job site go to waste or just yeah. so much uh, material goes to waste is just because people don't have the time to, f- to repurpose it. You know, it's not perfectly... Uh, set up for the purposes that, that they want to use it for and they don't have the time to to trim it back or remodel it or repurpose yeah. it. Yeah, so or therefore, it yeah, or exactly. Because that time, they need to use that time to go and build a new house to get the money to buy their food to pay the, the rent or the mortgage or whatever. So it's like, yeah, this, this absence of time is creating this overflow of resources that are going to waste and then people with the time like you two who you've set your lives up that way you have the time then to get that stuff and repurpose it but yeah that's the kind of conundrum we're in yeah that's right and i think that's you know kind of how the farm boys thing came about as well you know um it's just like sharing with different people and empowering different people and showing them different techniques where they can recycle stuff you know, um, and they can repurpose. Um, yeah, it's not it's not rocket science. It's not hard to do it. Um, you've just got to, um, yeah, like you said, you've just got to slow the fuck down. You know, breathe from your belly, and um, yeah, yeah, just just enjoy the journey and whatever you're finding. Well, just think of it as, as gold, rusty gold. You know, and 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 as soon as you build something out of that. And you put it to use. And if you don't put it to use, it just sits in the corner. It's a bit of art. You love looking at it. Well, the planet's going right on, man. Well done, you know. So, yeah. Love that's, that. That's, that's it. Heath, uh, man, so you grew up uh, down there around Nambucca. And you kind of, uh, like Addy, grew up in a culture where, you know, you guys were growing your own food. Your dad and your brother were making their own surfboards. It was, again, very much like a, a do-it-yourself culture. Yeah, very much so. Her dad always, he he made our, our homes that we lived in. And then when we moved again later on in life, he did a lot of the renovations there. And his, his dad had a saying, if you want something done right, do it yourself. So... That was kind of ingrained into us um, through the family, and you know, my mum was the real powerhouse. To be honest, you know, she was the one that was working full time, you know, raising three kids. So was dad, and he was, you know, instrumental in many other areas of our life. But mum was the one that she grew all our vegetables and the fruit trees, and you know, maintained the fertility of the land. And she'd go out and work. Go, you know, drive half an hour out to Bowerable Central School and work out there and then come home in the afternoon and be working till dark in the garden on a you know pretty severely sloped property what you know walking down to the veggie patch 100 meters down the path and maintaining you know copious amounts of fresh veggies and the most beautiful exotic fruits on hand all the time you know we had we had Hawaiian guavas for about four months of the year with you know four or five different trees and we'd go and pick them every morning and have our own bananas that we'd grate them up together and have them with muesli for breakfast and and you know persimmons and custard apples and um, you know, all these fruits that a lot of people have never heard of 
that we just have on tap all the time. And the reason that people haven't heard of a lot of those fruits is because they don't travel well, they don't, you know, keep well, so the supermarkets can't really sell them. But in my opinion, they're the most delicious fruits that you can have. So, yeah, I was definitely brought up with parents that just went out and did it and made sure we had beautiful fresh foods. You know, Dad made all our surfboards growing up and, and our homes, like I said, and, you know, if something needed fixing or building, Dad was onto it. And, and whenever the yard work needed doing, Mum was on that. It's amazing, man. It's amazing. And I, it reminds me of a, a chat I was having with this older Israeli guy recently. He was telling me about growing up in a kibbutz uh, in Israel. And like a kibbutz is basically a situation where you get 15 of your mates and you go, you buy some land and you go, we're just going to build each other's cribs together. We're going to build farms. When we, uh, when once we're all set up with our houses and we're farm and our farms, we're going to obviously eat that food, but we're also going to sell that food, and that food is going to run the kibbutz. And so they, 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 it's like an mo, like kind of what Rasta lives on, I guess. Uh, it's all like a, it's a common way of living here, but it's an ancient tradition in, uh, in that Israeli culture. And um, by by doing that, they end up getting the money uh from the sale of the food and that's able to pay for schooling and and university fees it pays for rent uh you know it ends up producing people from the kibbutz who then go on to become doctors and make heaps of money but because uh the kibbutz paid for their tuition fees they then give their wage back to the kibbutz and it's this like cycling permaculture hub Uh, again by a different name i guess but uh yeah it's kind of what you guys were doing uh in your own way i guess maybe you didn't have the 15 mates but i'm sure like did, did you like w- did your dad have mates and was there uh, a crew that helped chip in and, and helped him build those properties in return for him helping them that that kind of stays i think probably in the early days when he was building the first pole pole sheds slash house that we lived in which was a classic you know just a uh, hardwood poles milled from or cut down on the property to build this shed house that was literally one sliding door between our bedroom and mum and dad's bedroom, which were side by side with my brother and sister. You slide that door open and you're one and a half metres from the glassing bay. So when dad was <laughs> dad was doing glass jobs and hot coats in there, like they'd be wafting through and I wasn't sure if I was getting excited about nachos or getting stoned off the hot coat going on next door. It was all going on. Man, that's a good... I'm glad you mentioned that because, yeah... That's the other reality of, of, of living this way is that there is a time at the start of it where it is very subsistence style. Like it, oh, it's mate. almost yeah. like a glorified humpy. And when you moved down the coast out into, you know, essentially the desert, you started the same, right? You, you and your family were living in a freaking a bus before you were able to build your mint crib that you got. No, now. it's not true, really. It, no, uh, we, I wanted to. Oh, like, that's within, right. Yeah, I had, I had the bus set up and... The olds were like, very, you're not fucking living in there. Yeah, the my wife wasn't keen to move out there. And then my olds come down and went, nah, it's too rough, mate. You can't expect her to want to move out here. So. Dad's like, mate, that, are you some kind of heathen? What are you doing? You're like, you're growing up with fucking hot mixes going off yeah. in the room next year. Oh, mum, mum cooked outdoors for the first you know, few years of living there. And the shower was outside. You know, every When 
it was a wood-fired oven. We grew up with that was our only way of cooking with a wood-fired oven for the first 12 years of my life. So wow. that was the way we heated our water. That was the way we cooked. Mum would get up in the morning, go down, stoke the fire, you know, put the porridge on in winter. You know, we had to get the fire cranking again to have porridge and you know have a hot shower that day. So it was very much... Um, yeah, a lot of hard work in the early days for those guys. And you know, I would have loved to start my journey on the farm like that. I, th- I, I really think that's a great way to go because it, you know, you can get something up quick and, and simply and very cheap. You can go and start living out there, do it rough for a while, learn to appreciate the luxuries that, we, that we're accustomed to in life and slowly work towards, you know, something much nicer to live in down the track and in the meantime you're getting to know the country that you're living in the landscape its weather patterns and you're going to design a far better home to live in in the long run than just trying to build your dream home straight off the bat without knowing that area that you're going to live on man that's sage advice wow yeah that is so true that's the karmic dividend for yeah you know really stripping back your life and connecting to the natural patterns, you know, you, it shows you the way. There's little signs all over the joint if you're paying attention, huh? Yeah, totally. And, Man, yeah. and and talk to us about transitioning, obviously, from that lifestyle then into being, you know, high-profile junior surfer, competing on the junior series, doing really well in that arena, uh, you know, going on the WQS. Man, like, talk about a, a, a culture shock. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was all I ever wanted to do growing up. You know, my dad built surfboards and just all he read was surfing magazines and boat building magazines and all he talked about was surfing. My brother was a competitive surfer and I just wanted to do what my brother did basically. He was out there chasing the contests and you know did the QS for years. He was 11 years older than me, but basically I just wanted to you know, following his footsteps and, and get one place higher was my goal all the time, just to go a bit better than what Sage did. And into my teenage years, I was shit at competing and at surfing, really, in the early days. The first grommet comments I was doing, I'd get knocked first round all the time. But it's, um, you know, I worked really hard to try and get my surfing and, you know, competitive surfing to the place where I actually did start to do well. And, um, you know, by my late teens, yeah, I was starting to do a lot better on the junior series and got good support. You know, we were sort of in that golden era where there was a lot of money in surfing and, you know, Billabong had about bloody 20 guys they were sponsoring in my age bracket when I was 16 and then every couple of years they'd cull that by half, you know. And then, yeah, so I was really, that was all I cared about in my late teenage years and that was what I put my energy into and then it wasn't until I sort of left home around 20 and and moved to a property at Valor Beach where I had a backyard and I could start to grow a bit of food and you know probably had started having the odd spliff as well and like you'd have a spliff and watch morning of the earth or something and and just be like far out like that's actually what I want to do I want to be living a simple life, living off the land and growing my own food and, you know, riding some different boards, maybe drawing some different lines and and just thinking about things a little bit more multi-dimensionally than just ripping the shit out of it and trying to 
tear the other bloke's head off in a heat, <laughs> which, yeah, I don't know. It's So over the course of the next five years, I basically um, did the QS until I was 25 and, and, you know, I wasn't doing that good anyway, but my heart wasn't really in it and I was starting to really be really conscious of, you know, when we grew up, you know, we we would always take all our own water with us if we went to a contest or pack all our own food so we weren't having to eat out all the time and buy water and we're really environmentally minded growing up. And then I hop on this QS wagon wheel where, you know, you're flying from destination to destination, you get three meals on a flight that are all packaged in, you know, your knife and fork are wrapped in plastic individually and everything's just going in the bin every single time and then you turn up to your motel and you eat out three times a day and, and i got mates i'm you know doing the tour with and they finish their cup of coffee and throw it out the window i'm like I'm like what the fuck are you doing mate yeah but, did you grab his head and slam it into the window <laughs> fucking wake up to nearly, yourself nearly. wake up to yourself geordie well, hope, <laughs> yeah so yeah but and then they'd, they'd say things like, oh, well, it's fucking, it's not my country or something like that. I'm like, mate, it's one world. It's, you can't go disrespecting the planet. It's all, it just made me feel a bit sick about how we were living our lifestyles and, and how we were treating the planet just to, you know, we were having a great time in the meantime, but I could definitely see that we were just fucking smashing the planet to live this lifestyle. Fucking earth. And it's been so normalized as well. Like it's almost uncool to to give a fuck about just totally. basic shit like that like just throwing fucking plastic away willy-nilly and consuming oh, yeah. plastic shit willy-nilly like you know if you if you're somewhat conscious of that you, you're painted as like a fucking woo-woo hippie person but mate my like i think about my granddad and my great-granddad like anzacs you know they would have fucking just chopped me in the back of the head for doing shit like that you know what i mean just fucking wasting shit willy-nilly so I don't think it's a, a new age hippie woo-woo thing. I mean, of course it's not. Of course it's not. It's basic fucking common sense not to be just a rabid consumer and waster of shit. Yeah, mate. Totally. Yeah. Well, and I hope that I think those guys, you know, probably thought about their, what they were doing and hopefully changed their tune after that. Mm. And, uh, man, I, can, I, I want to touch on a few of the highlights of your career. I mean... Uh, I'd love to know what yours are because I can remember being in J-Bay and I, to this day, I've never seen the wave like this. In 2009, you were a wild card in a Billabong Pro uh, and you drew Parker, I think, in, in round one, like in, in the best form. He's never surfed this good like in his career before or since. I think that was like peak Parker, roping supers. Round like, two, man. Was it round two? Yeah. yeah. I got Dayan in round one. Right. Oh, you got him? Yeah. Got, got one heat win on the CT. Sick. That's huge, man. That's not easy to do. And uh, yeah, well, that's huge. Like, mate, anyone who even gets to compete at that level is a freak of nature. Like, it's it's a, it's elite. It, it's mind-melting. So, mate, that, that's something to hang your hat on. And that day at Supers, like, I think it was kind of an anomaly because uh, the sand had washed around from one of them back beaches and had plugged all the holes in the reef and it was just roping pits pretty much from yeah. top to bottom. Like dudes were getting tubed, carve, tube, carve, tube, kick out. Like it's it's generally not like that because of all the houses again that they've built on the point and on the dunes so the sand doesn't wash out to sea and plug the holes in the reef. It's more like a, a, a beltable point break with a pit at the end sometimes. But 
that day was was mindless, man. And, and J-Bay was pretty good to you over the years. Yeah, mate. I've had absolutely some of my best memories are from hanging out at J-Bay over the years. And you know, I was super lucky to be on the Bong team. for they, they sponsored me from when I was 12 up to 24. So I had 12 years of of getting their support and you know, super grateful for all of that support. And um, I think I went there three years in a row as a, as a trialist and you know, just hanging out and surfing J Bay was insane. Like I absolutely love that wave. I love the people of the area. I love when you get up in the morning and walk down the whole joint just smells like mull. I don't know what's going yeah, on there. What is that? I don't know. I don't, Fucking I don't think it is like maybe everyone's got some in their pocket or something, but <laughs> One well, of the plants there there is just, that too, just but... smells like it and it's, it's just a magic zone. Uh, yeah, I've had so many great sessions there over the years and that and Africa in general, up at um, Durban around Belido, that was one of my favourite stops too. A lot of my favourite times on the tour were away from the events. I, ha- I had a couple of insane trips to Chile after the Brazilian leg, which was always my sort of least favourite part of the tour. It was just so intense there and the waves were often not terrific as well, but I didn't really gel with the vibe in Chile, but I mean, sorry, in Brazil, but then we'd go south to Chile for a couple of weeks after it and, you know, just hire a car at the airport um, and then go down and hang out in the points, you know, five hours south of there. And at the time there was hardly anyone around. I'm not sure if it's still like that now, but it was super quiet and, We'd just drive along these, you know, series of point breaks until we found one of them that was pumping and more often than not, there'd be no one out and just surf our brains out and then go up to these local little little general story sort of things. It's not they couldn't even really call them a general store, but you know, a place to buy food. Yeah, rice and beans. Yeah. Well, yeah, a bit of rice, but they'd make their own fresh breads every fresh bread rolls every day called pan. You'd get a little bit of pan and these big avocados and we just live off that. And then, yeah, dinner time, it'd be fresh fish caught that day with a few veggies from the local area. Like like Addy was saying, you know, the third world economy invented permaculture. Mm. The locals are still getting around on bullock and cart and horseback down there at this Unbelievable. time. All, that, all the food was just beautiful, like so fresh and so tasty and, and the surf was pumping. It was cold and, and sort of harsh conditions, which I've learned to love over the years as well. So... That was a really special time. Had a real classic run, a uh, real classic trip there with Cairns on my second trip there. And Fuck, pretty funny. man. Watching him go berserk, uh, front side, they're all left points down there pretty much. That must have been an experience at that point. He <laughs> well, was pretty much one of the best surfers in the world. Yeah. No, I was. I loved surfing there and would surf as much as I can, but he would stay out like all day. And a Coffs guy as well. Let's yeah. not forget. Yeah. From his right. own, basically. And um, yeah, we like turned up. Um, at the airport when we got there and you don't really organise a car in advance because that costs you three times as much. You just walk into the airport and everyone goes, you want a car, you want a car? This We can give you one for this much and we got this. Yeah, old... I'll take the Mazda Bongo. Yeah. yeah, we got the Honda CRV for like a third of the price and, and said, you know, told the guy, yeah, we're flying out at 5am in two weeks' time. We'll meet you at the departures when we're taken off. So two weeks' time comes pull up at departures that bloke's nowhere to be seen we're sitting there for like 10 15 minutes and then clock's ticking away we've got to go check in like fuck what do we do and we just left the keys in the ignition and walked off and checked in 
So hopefully he got his car back. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, love that, man. That's so good. And you kind of suspect that stuff's going on around the QS. Like, because, man... You know, you can't be traveling to Brazil or traveling no, to Huntington most, and, and not exploring the quality waves in the area. I don't think a lot of people do, though, especially at that point in time. Like, we were all so spoiled, basically, and never had to go and work before that. Or, you know, we just we got to go to all these places. And a lot of the time, as soon as you'd lose, you'd want to book a ticket and get out of there, get home straight away, because you never got to hang at home with your mates or experience that part of it and I had part of that in me but also had part of me that really wanted to check out the areas I was in while I was there and would often you know stay another week or a couple of weeks just to be able to check out the area a bit instead of just going from your hotel to the comp site mm. mate another iconic Jozza moment uh the soul arch at J Bay got a touch on it it was uh i mean you're, you're probably sick of talking about that and sick of being remembered for that but it was uh it was a classic moment and it, it, it seemed to be like also uh a real signifier of that kind of transition you're in at that point going from the comp guy that the bong guy and, and you at that stage i don't know if you're on bong anymore but you were well and truly on your way to, to being the guy that you are today yeah i'm not not sure what to really say about it apart from you know the waves were just pumping and um had a few staying with uh, some good friends and we rented rented the top level on um beach music it was called the accommodation <laughs> we had like the penthouse suite it was with lincoln taylor and Dion atkinson and stewie kennedy and and lincoln's dad and um yeah, as soon as we turned up there, we got a bit of a bag of hooch and we were just sitting up there between heats and everyone was calling around and having spliffs on the top deck and we could see straight across to the judges' tower, like straight over. <laughs> we're like, I wonder well, if they're on to us. Like, well, they're probably on the spliffs too, aren't they? I mean, <laughs> judged by some of the scores they're throwing out. Are you kidding me? So we were just sitting up there having the sickest time and the surf was pumping that whole event. It was classic because it was like the one year where it went from being a, um, a CT to a QS. That's right. That was a weird, glitchy year. Yeah. yeah. What idiots! But so, so good for you guys. Yeah, it was a karmic twist in the tour at the time. But yeah, and there was like ninety six of us just turned up to pumping JB. The whole comp fired. Like it was crazy. Yeah, and remember just watching it, freaking out how good it was, and and that heat in particular was just like yeah, in a crazy state of bliss. I remember yeah after that wave, in particular, I was just like giggling to myself paddling back out just like wow this is as good as it gets it was yeah just felt like one of my funnest free surfs you know not like a competitive heat mm. and then next head i got zeke and he was just all over me and that was the end of that zeke Lau, yeah <laughs> classic uh yeah man and i think why it matters to people that moment is that you know you represented a sensation or a feeling that we would all have in that moment on a wave like that. Like, and instead of just comp moding and, and looking for the, the next opportunity to rip off a carve, you enjoyed the moment and you, you, you kind of said to the surfing world, like, yeah, it's okay to just fucking go high, go fast, feel the uh, breeze in your hair and, and <laughs> okay. just enjoy it, man. You don't have to rip the fuck out of every single section and, 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 and think about surfing in those terms. Well, totally. That was the path I was on at that point. Like I said, I was 
coming home and I'd be watching Morning of the Earth far more than Modern, modern Collector. <laughs> yeah. you know? and, and hopping on my dad's single fins a lot at that point and starting to feel those high lines and, and just loving that feeling. Like sometimes just take off on a wave and I wouldn't do a turn and just hunt for that sweet spot. Like I think, you know, the fall line as Nat Young would call it or, you know, Bryce's new movies just come out being called the fall line. It's that perfect line in the wave where you, you're just getting maximum momentum and, and glide. And yeah, like that was giving me just as much joy well, giving me far more joy than trying to go out and and rip it up, which which is great fun too. But I'd been trying to do that for you know the last ten years of my life, and was getting a bit stale, I guess. Mm, mm. And I mean, talk to us about like so you grow up in this abundant East Coast subtropical region where food is just growing from every palm frond and branch. <laughs> And I guess all things in perfect balance, like uh, you then felt the calling to, to move to an arid, barely hospitable food desert and uh, have a crack at growing a single alfalfa sprout down there. How did it, how did it, uh, how did all that transpire? Well, and uh, talk to us about that transition. Yeah, well, at the end of each year competing for a couple of years in a row, We'd um, a couple of my good mates from Valor would head down to Falls Fest at Vico, and then after that we'd head over to the desert, and um, yeah, just hang there for a couple of weeks and get some waves. And we'd stay in this old train carriage that a friend of ours from the area, uh, from Valor, owned, and you know there was no power. You know, you'd have to go out to the tank to get your water. There was no phone reception no toilet it was just super basic living and i fucking loved it i loved every bit of it it just had so much fun down there and really learnt to love the landscape in its harshness and it's you know how barren it is as well and you probably didn't cop any of those uh 45 degree days when you're living in that train carriage though did you oh, I, I, no, I probably did definitely because you can get a real like the wrong idea of that part of the world until you cop like a week of those days yeah totally but no, that first trip, no, yeah, the first year I didn't, but the second this year. This place is the dream. Yeah, pretty much. We had an awesome time. We actually got some good waves for that time of year and and had a had an awesome trip and then came back down the next year and yes, saw the other side of it a little bit. We had some heat waves and then had howling winds and just a bunch Fly of shit Fly blown. Fly blown and. Yeah, I used to stay with one of my mates who's just a unit, Sonny's his name, and like he got really sick that trip. And his idea of you know healing himself was to just sweat it out. So he was like up on the roof doing maintenance on the roof of the place in long black trackies and a black hoodie, and and doing work on like a forty five degree day to sweat wow. it out. And then the, the the back of his heels were callousing up and cracking, like getting like ten mil cracks. So he got a disc sander and sanded it all back. And then he couldn't hardly walk for like the next two weeks. <laughs> These are the characters I was hanging out with down there. It's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that second trip, I met my current wife and uh, we you know, just fell in love straight away, basically. And she came and lived on the East Coast with me after that for about a year and then we actually split up for a bit and she moved back down there and, and then I realised I'd dropped the ball big time there and chased her back down there. And I, I sort of knew once I 
once I moved down there, I was probably, yeah, probably going to be hanging down there for a little while. And that was the start of my, yeah, the last 10 years living down there. Fascinating. And obviously, uh, the, the Farm Boys series is, you know, it's based around yourself, Addy, uh, Rasta, uh, Tim and Anna, who are down near you. And it, it's all about, you know, growing your own food in, in often less than ideal situations. Talk us through, yeah, j- just the lengths to which you've had to go to, to kind of cultivate your farm and some of the trials and tribulations. I remember the last time I was down there, you'd set half the joint on fire. <laughs> yeah, it's been a journey, man. Been a wild journey. Uh, it's, um, yeah, so when I, when I first got the property, um, the first year, first winter I was living there, I, as soon as I got it, I was really keen to you know, start growing fruit trees and get the veggie garden pumping and try and emulate what my mum did over here to a certain degree. And you know, put thought I'll just start with some really hardy fruit trees and put an olive and a mulberry and a couple of figs in, and then by the middle of that summer they were all dead. And you know, we were trying to grow tomatoes and lettuce and just failing miserably. Um, and you know, I was living, or well, we bought an old an old farming property. So prior to that, it had been it had been chained clear twice between 1950 and 1990, and and had you know been cropped every couple of years and had sheep on it every other year in so the previous you know, 70 years before I got it and in that time there'd been areas that had been you know, overplowed or over grazed to the point where there's no topsoil left and then they'd be fenced off and that's where the trees and shrubs slowly started to come back and try and heal that patch of earth and that's where we live now so luckily that did get so smashed that we've actually got a bit of shelter on what be on what would be a completely cleared property, and you know you talk it's often referred to as the desert down there, which um, you know I'm not sure if it would have been like that when the indigenous mob were looking after it. It's ninety not ninety nine percent of suitable cropping land in South Australia has been completely cleared in the last hundred and fifty years. Mm. So, you know, when you're down there in a 45 degree day and it's stinking hot, you go under you know, a nice patch of bush where there's lots of shade and the temperature drops five degrees, five ten degrees straight away. Now, what would happen if that whole peninsula was actually had a lot of trees all over it? Maybe it wouldn't be such a desert. Um, but anyway, that's a bit getting a bit sidetracked. But no, it's a good point, man. I mean, the the wheat industry in this country's got a lot to answer for, like. Uh uh, I think we had Simon uh, Zubich, a uh, black fella from over West Way on the program and just talking about how like we're actually a slave to wheat <laughs> in this country. Like, Mate, it's pretty radical and that's another reason why I'm so passionate about, you know, what, growing our own food and, and changing our way we are growing food elsewhere as well is because I've, you know, I've seen these huge areas of broadacre farming and you know, I smell the farm chemicals drifting over the fence, uh, you know, on a weekly basis in summer. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's a tricky one because they're, they're trying to grow a lot of food and feed the world or whatever. But And whether, you know, ploughing it up every year to put an organic crop in is also extremely damaging to the soil too. So the chemical thing is, you know, I, I'm not into it at all. Don't get me wrong, but... I'm not sure if it's that much worse than ploughing it up every year as well. 
but it's creating, it's destroying the soils. There's mm. no doubt about it. And then when you move into a property where you're trying to use that soil to grow food, it is extremely challenging. It's far more challenging than taking on a block in town where it hasn't been industrially farmed. Mm. So, yeah, from that point of not of failing miserably with the first fruit trees and not having any luck with the veggies, I, I started reading and watching videos and talking to the people that were doing it successfully and basically started trying to employ, you know, every biological building mechanism I possibly could on the farm. So got right into my composting and Addie's uh, nurtured my compost journey. Yeah, tell us, just give us a quick, like, p- people have been hitting me up. I've had a couple of requests for, for Addie and Heath's uh, compost mix. Like, what's the, because I've seen you whipping around on the beach and you're beating up uh, Jeep or whatever it is, just loading up on seaweed. I know that's a big part of it, but what's the, what's the, the magical formula? Uh, well, the magical formula for me is I've got chooks and they bring a, they bring a heap of magic to the scene as well, but it's about having a, a bit, basically a 50-50 mix of, of your greens to browns. Like you can ca- get carried away in carbon to nitrogen ratios, which can get pretty confusing when you dive into all the different components of different things. Yeah, but give us the idiot's guide to compost. Yeah, idiot's guide is just 50% straw, 50% green stuff. Well, not maybe not 50, it's 50% straw and then say, 40% greens and then 10% manures on top of that, whether nice. that be sheep or cow manure. But in my mix, I'm throwing all sorts of stuff in. Like I've got a bin out the front of my property that people drop off fish frames in. So whenever I get a fresh dump of fish frames, it's either going in the compost pile or to the chickens. Or if we have a chicken that dies, it's going in the compost. Or, you know, you can be throwing a bunch of comfy leaves in there to help speed things up or, you know... Basically, anything that has once lived, you can throw in there to be cycled back to live again. Love that. And dude. then in my, you know, I'm I'm all about my worm farms too. I love my worm farms, and they, our worm farms filter all our grey water, so all the grey water from the house runs out through a pipe, and instead of going into a septic, it goes into four different worm farms, and then that comes out as comes out the other side as you know beautiful worm juice that goes straight out onto fruit trees or veggie gardens and and Do you have mo- a couple little sips as yourself you know just to test it <laughs> a little fucking little shot here and there no i can't recommend that but schooner glasses are good of it yeah got- that's i thought so living yeah. down that way i thought you can't so recommend you're a hearty shot. Bunch you gotta have it yeah slow sip yeah it's like uh sipping a, a schooner of old isn't it yeah and then the, the worm farms are epic. Like I throw everything in there. My old socks, you know, old woolen jumpers that the mice are starting to nibble into. Just True. Anything. Wow. If it's not, basically anything that's not plastic is mm. good. As soon as you start throwing things that are made out of oil in there, the worms don't want to bar of it. Mm. Even my groms, you know, all, all these nappies go into our composting toilet. We've got a composting toilet. That's gold. Everyone should have a composting toilet. Sick of everyone flushing their shit down the dunny to go to some wastewater treatment, get buzzed up on a whole heap of chemicals and then yeah. and then Flutter go somewhere out into else. Bondi Beach, fucking swimming around with the Bondi well, cigars. What are the scraps? Sydney sends 2,000 million megalitres a day out to sea of wastewater. Like, imagine what that could do if it went across the New England plateau and started taking the heat off the Murray River for some of our crops. You know, we're, mm. just, we're just wasting our resources. Hmm. 
Oh, that's fascinating, man. That's such a good point. There's so much. It's such a good start point, uh, permaculture and, and, and farming and, and, and thinking about ways to reuse products of all descriptions. And then it, it, it goes up a level and you start thinking, why can't these methods be applied on, on bigger scales? And, and then you start really getting into the potential for well, massive change. Yeah, well, one of my favourite quotes in permaculture is the problem is the solution and you can basically look at problems everywhere and and it's you just challenge your mind to start tweaking 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 until it's like whoa there's the solution now like all the the floods that we had on the east coast a couple years ago like you know there was a lot of rain no doubt but we're building more and more concrete jungles that's sending more and more of all of that water just hammering into the rivers and then we're we're clearing more and more paddocks and farming them in a way that's having more and more bare soil that doesn't hold the moisture it rushes it down into the rivers we're just creating more of a system where all the water's gushing to one place instead of systems where we're slowing the water every time and holding it in the landscape so we've got more drought resilient landscapes or the water that's being caught on all the industrial sheds and all the roadways is going to big dams to then help grow the crops that we need in drier times. It's all going into rivers and areas to help flood areas and make problems worse. So, yeah, I think if the problem is the solution is such a powerful one and there's areas on my property that when I first brought it, they were ugly to me, like they're these big old burrow pits and they were a problem. I didn't like them, but now that's probably going to be my best opportunity for growing food is in those areas that were the problem in my eyes and the problem where I had all these tumbleweeds growing up, uh, blowing up against fences and a fence blew over. If I collect those tumbleweeds and take them down to the borrow pit and let them break down, I'm building topsoil to start that environment down there. Now there's every time a problem pops up, it can actually be the solution. Mate, it's such a good message and uh, yeah, I'm very motivated and inspired by what you guys are telling me but also the Farm Boys Project, it really got me thinking, you know, as being a guy who grew up in the, a seething metropolis where, you know, barely had backyards a lot of the time, um, just to know that it's not that hard uh, and anyone can do it and, and, and any every anyone and everyone should do it. That That's your fucking responsibility, man, like um you know don't be don't don't be a bitch don't fucking cop out on this like don't whinge about system failures and how fucked everything is like here's a very simple way to to uh you know stick a pitchfork square up the fat white man's ring (laughs) and uh you know like get a bit of power and and autonomy but back in your life and 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 feed your family and be healthier and and in a multitude of different ways um so yeah Totally respect what uh, you guys have done here. Thanks to Patagonia. And uh, yeah, thanks to you boys for, for giving us your time because uh, we pretty much got to get out of here because I think we're about to get evicted anyway. <laughs> thanks, Smibby. I reckon the, the kibbutz is the go. Hey, the kibbutz, I love, I love that word, kibbutz. Yeah, yeah. But you know, with all these huge farms that are getting taken over by a single you know, family that's just buying up more and more area, it's... They're too unaffordable for for us to buy, but you get a bunch of mates in, kibbutz the shit out of it, and start. Kibbutz, kibbutz. Yeah, 
That's it. It's just a series of kibbutz everywhere. It would be epic, mate. We need a massive farms. Massive farmers, not massive farms. I reckon. 100%, man. And uh, even better, like, we won't be stealing that land off um, downtrodden Palestinians. So, win-win. <laughs> Up the swellians. Up the swellians.